and welcome to the Feathers Pub in Westminster and the return of On The House, where we pick over the political week with fellow MPs, friends and friendly rivals over a drink after work. I am Sam Jima, Member of Parliament for East Surrey. I started the week as the Conservative Member of Parliament for East Surrey. Yeah, we've all been on a bit of a journey this week, Sam. Um, I'm Philip Lee, and as of yesterday, I'm the Liberal Democrat member for Bracknell. Um, You may have noticed that there are exciting times ahead. Um, We'll be coming out every Friday with an inside take on politics. So don't forget to subscribe to On The House on your favourite podcast app. Sam. Well, um, joining us to recap what they're calling the most momentous week in the Commons for 300 years, no pressure on us, is uh, Guto Beb. And um, we were expecting a female guest uh, this afternoon, but um, for for some reason or another, we haven't been able to sort it out because of the diary. I promise that next time round, we will not have an all-male panel. Hello, Guto. How are you? Hi, Sam. I'm very well, thank you. Great. So, context, we're straight out of recess into a five-way showdown between the executive, the legislature, the press, the Conservative Party, and oh, let's not forget, the people. Kuto, is this what you came into politics for? Oh no, to be perfectly frank, I think this week has been um, another week of high drama, which has absolutely damaged again my um, enthusiasm for politics because what we're seeing is a an administration which has no compulsion in trying to use the type of language which has been triumphed by Trump in America and I do genuinely feel that the idea that uh, we should have a people versus parliament general election which is what Boris Johnson wants is genuinely shocking because ultimately every single MP has been elected by the general public so the idea that um, our parliaments, the oldest parliaments in the world, is in some way the enemy of the people, is only something that can actually be claimed uh, by an individual who has lost contact with what the meaning of democracy actually is. I think you're so right, Gita. I mean, one of the things that I have found um, surprising this week is this whole idea of the will of the people, which only Boris Johnson appears to embody, the one and indivisible will of the people. So at any point in time, whatever he decides... It's the will of the people, and no one else can have another view. Is that how you see it? Well, it's certainly the case that um, Mr Johnson takes the view that if you are holding a view which is different to his, um, then your view is illegitimate. But I think what is even more concerning is the way in which the media uh, are giving him support in this endeavour. And I think one of the um, issues that should really concern all of us who believe in democracy and representative democracy is the way in which um, the Prime Minister is intent on using Second World War imagery to attack those who happen to disagree with him. Now, the whole point of the Second World War was that we were fighting for democracy. And yes, the Prime Minister is hell-bent on highlighting that people such as myself, the two of you, uh, we are collaborators, we are involved in a surrender document. And yet, you know, the one thing that he should remember was that his great political hero, Winston Churchill, always welcomed the intervention of Anirin Bevan in debates in the Second World War. Anirin Bevan always challenged Winston Churchill in the chamber of the House of Commons in the Second World War. And not once did Winston Churchill attack him for being involved in collaboration. Every single intervention from Bevan was welcomed by Churchill because Churchill knew he was fighting for democracy. 
Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, might have been the biographer of Winston Churchill, but he has not understood the man. I think it's, that's so interesting. Um, one of the best lines I've read on the Boris Johnson premiership in the last couple of weeks, I think it's um, Tom Peck at The Independent, who said Churchill had his darkest hour, but Boris decided to switch off the lights and then switch them back on and expect the country to praise him. But uh, before we go into detail, kind of, what is your view? Um, well, I mean, I, 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 you know, since we last met Sam... Um, obviously, I've um, walked across the chamber and, you know, that wasn't an easy decision. I mean, in politics, we all know this when you're campaigning. I mean, Gitter and I, <laughs> Gitter and I, we, we met um, on a getting selected course in Milton Keynes. We used to know how to have a good time, didn't we, um, Gitter? Uh, in 2006. And, you know, I... This is I, when you saw your future in yeah, exactly. the Conservative Party. And, and, I, and I reflect upon that, and I suspect, you know, we were both were well motivated when it comes to politics, want to make a difference. Uh, I know that you had your eyes on a particular seat at the time, and you were so, you know, and uh, obviously successfully went on to win that. But in that time, since 2006 through to now, I mean, I could never have foreseen the Conservative Party move so much. I mean, I joined in 1992, 27 years of membership, you know, so to leave was dramatic for me personally. But actually, I mean, I'm a bit tired of personal politics. It's, it's bedeviling the, the whole scene at the moment. Actually, when you think about the issues at play at the moment and how our body politic and how sick it is, actually the decision wasn't difficult. And on Wednesday, when I sat in a different vantage point looking across at you two, and I watched a display at the dispatch box and I'm not suddenly losing my objectivity just because I've joined another party. It truly, to my mind, honestly, was the worst display at the uh, dispatch box of Prime Minister's Questions I'd ever seen. And, and I just thought to myself, do you know what? This actually feels a lot better than I thought it might. I thought I'd feel uncomfortable. I genuinely felt like I was in the right place. So it's been a, an interesting week for me and, and I, I, I feel for decent, reasonable Conservative colleagues who are still hanging on board the ship, so to speak, because they cannot feel comfortable, happy about being associated with an administration that is just, honestly, it's just, it's just not Conservative in my book. Well, so, Philip, you, uh, during the last podcast, you felt that you were straddling the Sant'Andrea's fault. Yeah. And... Um, it sounds like you've resolved that. Well, we had a bit of an earthquake, didn't we? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I mean, I think, you know, and I, I you know, I, I remember saying, because uh, Elizabeth, my sister-in-law, asked me the questions I remember, and, and, I, and I said, you know, I'm going away to summer to think about things. At that point, it was about things. It was about different options. And some of our colleagues have made different decisions. I mean, Justine has decided not to stand at the next election. And today... Justin Greening, Justin is. Greening, sorry. And today we've got Joe Johnson and Nick Hurd now, I just hear, is not standing at the next election. I mean, I, you know, Eton needs to get his, his arsing gear, as far as I'm concerned. It's losing too many MPs from the Conservative Party. I mean, I'm used to lots of old Etonians being around, but when you're losing Nick Soames, Rory Stewart, Nick Hurd and Joe Johnson in 48 hours, I mean, and it's all under an old Etonian Prime Minister... I mean, wow. I mean, the, the Conservative Party is, is, is really 
getting stirred up by this, and I and I I don't know where it ends. And uh, I, what I do know is is that I'm comfortable about the party I'm in now, and 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 I want to get on with concentrating on the issues and the issue, the main issue at hand, Brexit, because the people deserve so much better than this. Guto, can I ask a question? And I know you're burning to say something as well. Removal of the whip from 21 Conservative MPs, including two former chancellors. Can you put that in some kind of political context for us? Well, I don't think there is a political context. Um, having spoken to um, various members of the House of Lords today, um, none of them can recall uh, such a purge of moderate members of any political party. And just to put that in context, um, for the past two and a half years, we've heard a lot about the um, attempt to purge the moderates from the Labour Party. Well, Jeremy Corbyn has been leader of the Labour Party since 2015, and I'm no fan of Jeremy Corbyn. I think he's a, he's a danger to our country. I think he would be the wrong man to lead this country. But I think I'm right in saying that not a single Labour MP has lost the Labour whip for voting against Jeremy Corbyn. And wow. yet, and yet on, Je- on Boris Johnson's second day in Parliament as our Prime Minister... Uh, 21 Conservative MPs lost the whip and one crossed the floor. And when you look at those individuals, they are people such as Anne Milton, who is probably one of the most loved yeah. deputy chief yeah. whips that Former we've had. deputy chief whip. Never rebelled against the party. Richard Benyon, lovely guy, near neighbour of mine in Berkshire. Absolutely. Um, Nicholas Holmes, grandson of Winston Churchill, is no longer a Conservative MP. Kenneth Clark, who has been an MP a Conservative MP for 49 years is deemed by Boris Johnson to be not Conservative enough. To be perfectly frank, the reason why these people have lost the Conservative whip is because Boris Johnson is turning the Conservative Party into a pound shop Brexit party. I think you're so right. I mean, just the biographies of these people, I think, make it interesting. And the media has focused very much on the number 21 and the former cabinet ministers. But there are so many interesting little stories here. So Anne Milton is a deputy chief whip, as you mentioned. Um, I think there are some people who that was the first time they had ever rebelled against the government. I mean, can you, can you sort of shed light, a bit more light on who the 21 were and how they got to be doing this? Are they just Ramonas who just want to cancel the referendum result? I think that's one of the key things about this um, decision by the Prime Minister. He um, voted against the Theresa May's withdrawal agreement on two occasions. Uh, in other words, he rejected the opportunity to leave the European Union twice and rebelled against a three-line whip from a Conservative Prime Minister. Now, some of the people who rebelled for the first time, David Gork, for example, Philip Hammond, um, somebody like Rory Stewart, these are individuals who have never before rebelled against the Conservative Party. They were cabinet ministers in Theresa May's government. And I think it's the sheer hypocrisy, not only of a prime minister who has previously rebelled on a regular basis against the Conservative three-line whip, but a prime minister who appointed as his leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, an individual who has rebelled against the Conservative whip on over 100 occasions. Now, the sheer hypocrisy of that decision is resonating because there is an issue of fair play here. Now, one of the things which um, should make you all proud of being British is that innate sense of fair play. On fair play, you have a set of rules which you obey. What Boris Johnson is saying is 
he doesn't have to play by the rules. He can rebel against a conservative three-line whip and become prime minister. But the 21 who voted against him on Tuesday to respect the conservative manifesto have lost the whip. That is not fair play, that is not British, and I think that's one of the reasons why Boris Johnson will be a very short-lived prime minister. There are newspaper commentators suggesting that what we've seen this week is part of some grand plan from our Downing Street and um, that the purge, etc., is all part of what they intended. But has Boris lost the parliamentary party? I think he has, to be perfectly frank, but I don't think he ever had the parliamentary party. Um, just to put this in context, uh, everybody knew uh, when Theresa May announced her resignation. Uh, that Boris Johnson would become leader of the Conservative Party. But despite the fact that um, Conservative MPs, as with the MPs of any other political party, uh, want to make sure that they have an opportunity to progress in their careers, because after all, if you're an MP, uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a minister, uh, because if you're a minister, you can actually change things, you can make a difference. But even though and people, the Conservatives used to be the party of aspiration, absolutely. after all. But even though people knew that Boris Johnson was going to win, just to put his victory in context, in December, when an effort was made to get rid of Theresa May, uh, she gained the support of 203 Conservative MPs. Even when people knew that Boris Johnson was going to win, he only managed 160. And at least half of those only supported him because they were looking for personal advancements. And the point I'm trying to make is that Boris Johnson has never got the support of the Conservative Parliamentary Party because despite the champions that he has in the media, I think Conservative MPs knows that he's not a winner. Well, and they also know that actually he's not fit for the job, actually. And this was widely discussed and the problem I guess is you know his popularity with the Conservative Party membership was well known and so it was very very difficult and I was speaking to one colleague who tried to persuade his association that he was not fit for the role and got absolutely nowhere and what I've always found quite striking, and I can cite, I don't want to break a confidence at all, but strike lots of different examples of people who've worked with him in London Merity office who think he was not fit for the role. And this is widely known in conservative circles, and I think that it's, it's been extremely difficult for former conservative colleagues because they've sort of suspected that this was going to be how it was going to be. The other thing which I'd comment upon with sort of prime ministers in general, and I don't know what, what you two think about this, but I've observed that actually as you climb the political ladder, it, you get a bit of vertigo. It's like you get to the top and who's with you? Who's your team going to be? Who are you going to have as your close advisors? And if I look at David Cameron's team, they were quite able, David Cameron's team, but they were socially quite narrow. And so I think they were a bit, um, how should we say, a bit gung-ho about going to the country on a referendum because actually if they'd gone out and understood Britain, particularly England, they would have realised that it was going to be a tougher gig winning the referendum in 2016 than I think they thought it was. And when I look at Theresa May and some of the staff around her, 
you know, obviously wanting to do a good job as they see it. But again, it was the, the her decision making, the people she had advising on key issues, I found quite flabbergasting, to be honest with you, at the time. And look how it ended up. And now we have a chief of staff or in effect a chief of staff who, if he had a medical qualification, I would suggest he'd probably be best in a laboratory trying to work out the next new cancer drug. I'd have him as far away from patients as possible because it's all very well being clever, drawing up algorithms and managing data. But if you forget to put into your algorithm emotion, human nature, understanding people and their motivations for being in parliament, I tell you what you get, you get this shit show. And that's because this person, he may be very clever, but he doesn't understand people and their motivations for being in politics. I actually agree with you. I think, first of all, Philip is absolutely right about his comments about the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. But ultimately, who appointed him? And the book has to stop with the man who appointed I, him. I don't disagree with that. Because, you know, the Prime Minister knew, yeah. his, knew his flaws yeah. and he still appointed him. So um, anything that is currently being blamed on the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff is actually something that should be blamed on Boris Johnson. But the second point is, um, is the incredible uh, way in which Joe Johnson, who is a very well-respected member of Parliament, announced his resignation as a minister and his decision not to stand again as a Conservative. And we all know Joe very well. Yeah. And we all know that um, his loyalty to his brother... Um, is the reason why he went back and decided to support his brother's campaign for the leadership of the party. And for Joe Johnson to resign today by highlighting the fact that he has been torn between his loyalty to his brother and his responsibility for the good of the country, the national interest, and finally to come to the conclusion that he can no longer support his brother is a devastating critique of Boris Johnson because what we have is Joe Johnson saying quite categorically that his brother is not acting in the national interest. Now, I can say that, and I have been saying it, and I said it before Boris Johnson was ever elected. But you've got form. People expect you to say that. Because I know the man, and I don't think that he's fit for the office that he aspired to, and now the office that he holds. But for his brother to come to the same conclusion, and to say it publicly, it really should give us food for thought. Um, my view is that Boris Johnson should resign. The sooner he resigns, the better, because he should not offer himself to the British public as the Prime Minister of the next five years, because he's not fit to be Prime Minister of this country. It looks like there's a purge of the moderates in the Conservative Party going on, either because the whip was withdrawn from 21 MPs who are on the moderate wing of the party, We're all, we all voted against um, the party um, earlier this week, or because you're choosing to stand down. So Nick Hurd has decided to stand down. Caroline Spellman is standing down. I think that's just the beginning of what is happening. So what does this mean for not just the party in terms of the split in the party, but where these votes go? So where do moderate Conservatives go, given that they don't have a place in the Conservative Party? Boris is making it very clear he doesn't care about those votes. Oh, just quickly, I know Philip will have a view on this. There's a surprise. All I can say is, um, if you're a um, middle-of-the-road Conservative voter who believes in fiscal discipline, who takes the view that we should um, try and ensure that the individual 
is prioritised over the state. And more importantly, if you believe that common sense is more, the, more important than ideology, you are the typical middle-of-the-road Conservative. What we now have is a Prime Minister who is advocating a Conservative Party behaving as if it was a part of the Brexit Party. You know, Nigel Farage doesn't need to take over the Conservative Party because Boris Johnson is giving him the Conservative Party on a plate. This is no longer a party that can appeal to the middle ground. You know, I lost the Conservative whip on Tuesday. And I'm almost relieved because um, I've had two phone calls um, just prior to this recording from current Conservative ministers. And the question they asked me, the question they asked me was, did I think that their involvement in this administration would be damaging to their future career options? In other words, they, are, they know... Two, 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 min two, two ministers. Two. They know that they are involved with an administration which is no longer a conservative administration. It is a populist um, administration which is aping the policies of Trump and following the lead of Farage. Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, is showing himself to be a weak leader because he's not leading. He's actually following he's Farage led. and he's following Trump. Philip, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think... What's been interesting for me in the last 48 hours is that I obviously knew there were options, weren't there? I mean, there were three options, and some colleagues have taken the leave politics option. Some uh, um, colleagues have voluntarily or involuntarily taken the independent option. And then there was change party. And they're the three choices ahead of, 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 of people who, the sort of moderate conservatives that you, uh, you refer to. And it seems it's the same with the voters. You know, what are the voters going to do at the next election? Who are they going to vote for? And I came to the conclusion that once... I mean, I started having conversations a couple of months ago with some friendly Liberal Democrats. I mean, people I've met in various ways. And they, they knew sort of where I was politically and particularly in justice issues, which you and, Sam, you and I, Sam, have, you know, often there was more opposition behind us at the dispatch box than in front of us for what we were trying to do. And I think they thought, OK, let's talk. And I realised, actually, one, that um, I felt more comfortable talking to them about things than I had done with some of my conservative, so-called conservative colleagues. And two, that their membership had changed, that in, in response to the whole Brexit debacle, people had started joining the Liberal Democrats. There is the, every political party has a caricature of an activist. Okay, we all know this. And, 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 and satirists know this, everybody knows this. And that there is a caricature of a Lib Dem activist. I can assure you today, I met my the chairman of Bracknell Liberal Democrats today. And and I, I couldn't, honestly, I was, always, I was just like having a job interview. I was like nervous, Sam. I sort of walked in thinking, you know, who's this character going to be? And what's he going to think? I, I was once a Tory. This guy was fantastic. In fact, Gitto was, met him because I he was him. sat at the next table um, in Paul Cullis' house. This guy served his country over 20 years in the military, Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Tristan de Kuna, the whole thing. And I sat with him and I thought, I'm like this guy. And he, he said, we're all like this, Philip, you know, because they completely, because of the 2015 route, the local Lib Dem uh, association had to rebuild itself. They now got up as a 200 members locally in Bracknell and it's growing and it grew apparently on Tuesday in response to my decision. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that being a member of any conservative of a conservative party or the Liberal Democrats Labour, there's compromise. Okay, when you're a member of a political party, 
it's not the Sam Jima party, it's not the Gitto Beb party, it's not the Philip Lee party. We'll all have our views on things, and it doesn't always, and it hasn't with the Conservative Party, for me, for sure, align with the party that you're a member of. But that's the compromise you make when you become a party. For me, I came to the conclusion it was too big a compromise to be in this current Conservative Party. Okay, And I went to a party where, actually, I felt more comfortable and welcome. And the last 48 hours, I've been bathed in the warmth of the Liberal Democrats at every level. And it's been a joy, actually. It's been refreshing. And I am confident that I've made the right decision for me, and indeed, and this is more important, for the people I represent. Because ultimately, we're all trustees here. We're elected to represent the best interests of our, of our constituents. I don't think if I was currently supporting this Conservative administration that I would be doing the right thing by my constituents in Bracknell. So for me, personally, and I know it's all a personal decision and you're making different decisions yourselves, I've made the right decision for me. going to have to make choices and those Conservative MPs that didn't vote against the government to stop No Deal this week, who secretly felt that they should have, would find themselves having to sign up to a No Deal manifesto pledge come the general election which is not too far away. So I think this split in the party is quite a serious one, is my view. In fact I will go as far as saying it is the end of the Conservative Party as we know it. The Conservative Party that was about aspiration, that was pro-business, that preserved our constitution, the union, and, our, and the union, the home union. That that Conservative Party is not the Conservative Party that exists, and therefore the question anyone will have, if they were to stand under Conservative banners at the elections, can you honestly recommend to your constituents that Boris Johnson should be the next Prime Minister? And the unfortunate thing about how the newspapers frame this is they then say, well, if, it's, if you're not sporting jo- Boris Johnson, therefore it must be Jeremy Corbyn. But I think what, this could be the beginning of some kind of realignment in British politics. I mean, I'm, it's I, always I trade I'm, I'm sure they've talked about it lots of times before us, but it seems that that, that, that could be uh, the case. Good, so, I mean, you observe these situations uh, very carefully. Are we watching some kind of realignment with the Conservative Party becoming more of a sort of nationalist party on the right and the Labour Party becoming a hard left Labour Party? I mean, or it's just just the nature of British politics? I think we probably are um, seeing a realignment. But of course, because of our electoral system, um, it's very difficult to um, break the mould. So there's no doubt in my view that what is quite fascinating about this week is the fact that the Labour Party now seems slightly more moderate than the Conservative Party. (laughs) And I think that is genuinely, genuinely an important point because whilst the Labour Party leadership is utterly unfit to be in government, and 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 I say that quite openly, what is very clear is that in many ways Labour moderate MPs are stronger in the Labour Party than is the position of moderate MPs within the Conservative Party. Because we've already had the announcements made that the trigger ballots within the Labour Party have been suspended. Now what that means, and it sounds very technical, but what that means is that the Labour Party have taken the view 
that what they traditionally do, which is ask MPs to be reselected, is suspended because they expect an early election. Yeah. So, in other words, all those moderate Labour MPs who are threatened with deselection will still be standing for the Labour Party. Now, the Liberal Democrats are a moderate party. Mm. The Conservative Party, however, is expelling moderate members, is expelling moderate MPs, yep. and will be demanding an oath of loyalty to an ideologically extreme position, which is not supporting Brexit, let's be honest. Philip Hammond, David Gork, Rory Stewart, they all supported leaving the European Union. But that is no longer good enough. If you want to stand for the Conservative Party, you have to sign up to an ideologically extreme position of supporting a no-deal, no-mandate, economically damaging policy, which is a no-deal Brexit. And I think anybody listening to this, to this podcast will have to ask themselves a simple question. If you are opposed to ideological extremism, can you vote Conservative in the forthcoming election? And I have to say, I feel a degree of liberation. Uh, I haven't joined the Liberals. I haven't joined any other party. But I'm no longer tarnished with the label Conservative member for Abercornwy because it is tarnishing my good name to be associated with a party which is embracing the extremes of our current political thought process. And I just have to say, Boris Johnson, whatever you used to think of him when he was mayor of London, is allowing this takeover of the Conservative Party and encouraging it. And he needs to be rejected as a result. I think I was chatting away to a colleague, former Conservative colleague earlier, and I think sometimes, and maybe, maybe this podcast helps the listeners to understand the, the human um, element of being a member of parliament in this situation, in that colleagues have families, they have mortgages, they have hopes, ambitions and everything else. And this particular colleague, um, I can tell, is just racked with sort of, he's almost, you can see the shame almost in, uh, in him. Um, written, written across his face and he's having to make the judgment call to put his family first and I you know he came over to me because we're mates and obviously I'm now in another political party but he came over to sort of apologize and now I don't I'm certainly not going to say who this is and and I he doesn't actually need to apologize as far as I'm concerned um, but we need to reflect upon apologize for uh, apologize for not acting on what he actually thinks is the best interest of his country. I don't think he needs to apologise, but I do think we need to reflect upon how our system works when members of parliament are making judgment calls, quite understandable judgment calls about their families. And, and trust me, I haven't, this, the move I've made this week isn't a careerist move. You know, I'm no Matt Hancock. I have, I've made a decision on the basis of what I think is right for my country, for my constituents. I'm surprised Dr. Philip Lee doesn't want to be health secretary. Well, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of doctors up and down the country are reflecting upon the fact the person responsible for the health service is prepared to say one thing one month and then the next thing completely walk away from it and cite military sacrifice in the process. I mean, give me a break. Give me strength. The point is, um, I'm, I didn't make a decision that necessarily is in my family's interest, Sam. We, both of you and I have got young families. Gitto, you've got so many children. I mean, honestly. And the cats. I know. Fertile Gitto Beb. Um, I, 
And a cat, yeah. I've got to mention the cat. The cat's had an operation this week, listeners. What's I, the name of this cat? Boris? Tomas. Tomas. Oh, not Thomas. Boris, okay. But I guess my point is, is that, Collie, you know, I've made a decision that may be disadvantageous to my family situation because I might lose a job and I have a mortgage like anyone else. And, and I think, you know, that's how it is and I, and I don't regret it one bit, but I'm not going to start criticising colleagues who aren't doing that because of their family situation. And we might want to re- reflect upon how our politics is set up because ultimately I think it, most right-thinking people, irrespective of their politics, must want a parliament full of people who feel free to be able to make judgments on the issue at hand uh, without regard to the, to the state of their bank account or where their family are living or anything else like that. I don't know what the solution is, Sam. But where we are isn't the right place. Well, just to round off this part of the discussion, I mean, one of the things I found most disconcerting this week was the appeal of the government or the way the government framed the choice for would-be rebel MPs, which is you either do what you think is right and in the national interest or keep your job and your paycheck. And in a sense, that plays to all the stereotypes about politicians in it for themselves and putting themselves above the country. And that is what the government was trying to force people to do. And I absolutely agree with you, Philip, that therefore people who made these choices, the choice particularly to vote against the government, were going against their own personal interest in many ways and um, strength to them, but also understand that there are many others who for whatever reason couldn't do it. But I I think further along the line are also going to be standing up to the Johnson government. But I mean, but why did this happen? I guess if for people listening, what we haven't covered at all is why this big rebellion, why the need to withdraw the whip, what kind of what triggered it? And I'm talking specifically about the Ben bill. Was it necessary? Did these MPs just jump the gun rather than allow Boris to get a deal? Well, I'll I'll answer that very quickly. Um, The reason why the rebellion happened was because of the mismanagement of the situation by number 10. And the mismanagement was the decision to prorogue Parliament, in other words, to suspend Parliament. I think there was a genuine willingness amongst three quarters of the 21 who uh, rebelled to give the Prime Minister, probably until October to see whether he could secure a deal. There was a view that he was a new Prime Minister, he said he wanted a deal, and we should probably give him the opportunity to try and secure that deal. And I think all of that changed when he made the decision to suspend Parliament, contrary to what he promised during the uh, leadership campaign. And I think colleagues looked at each other and came to the conclusion that this Prime Minister couldn't be trusted was not engaging in trying to get a new deal and was actually trying to avoid any parliamentary scrutiny as he drove this country towards a no deal. So the reason why colleagues decided that they were willing to sacrifice their careers and in some cases their livelihoods was because they felt that this Prime Minister was misleading them and was actually hell-bent on getting a no deal Brexit and forcing Conservative MPs to support him in that endeavour. And I think the miscalculation Downing Street's made was that they don't really understand MPs because they felt that every single MP is very similar to the Prime Minister. In other words, (laughs) 
personal ambition, personal well-being, and where they are in the hierarchy is the most important thing for all politicians. And this rebellion on Tuesday shows quite clearly that not all politicians are the same as Boris Johnson. It's not all about us. It's about doing the right thing for the country. And I think the shameful situation we now have is that the media, um, especially the right-wing media, are championing probably the most disreputable politician that we currently have in the House of Commons. The politician that embodies everything that the general public dislikes about politicians. And yet the same media are attacking those people willing to sacrifice their careers to do the right thing for this country. So the whole world is turned upside down. The typical example of a politician who is only concerned about his own ambition is being championed by the very newspapers who have consistently attacked politicians for being vain and only concerned about themselves. I'm afraid that uh, this is a failure of our media, it's a failure of our newspapers, and all of this is embodied in the well-known Daily Telegraph columnist Boris Johnson. One of the things that has um, been really interesting, talking specifically about the legislation going through the House of Commons, and I think we should spend um, a couple of minutes on it, is how government ministers in defending it, you, you've got ministers willing to call black white and white black in the media. Isn't that a surprise? I, I like uh, Philip, do you want to touch on that and then tell us a little bit more about why we needed this legislation? I mean, it really is... I mean, it's jaw-dropping sometimes. I, and, you know, people who, you know, you and I came in in 2010. There was a large influx of Conservative MPs then. What, 147 is the number that springs to mind, new MPs. And colleagues, our contemporaries, and now some of our contemporaries are in Cabinet. And, I, 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 you know... What did we do wrong? You know, well, no, well, clearly it's because we're not prepared to say that black is white. And not prepared to say something. And white and it, is black. And white is That's black. And, and, and not to prepared to say something um, two months ago and then completely retreat from that position and not stand on that principle. And, and I find that um, I can't do that. Now, I understand. I don't want to get too idealistic about it. I understand um, that, uh, that you can't this compromise in politics and sometimes you end up you know it's not black or white it's grey you end up polishing a turd a bit you end up just trying to get through that's that's politics and it's and it's the reality of life actually you know it's not just in politics there's always sometimes you have to compromise and so it's not that I'm being a purist but if you say that proroguing Parliament is wrong in order to try to facilitate a no-deal Brexit and then say something can support the complete opposite and then suddenly by, by complete chance pop up in the Cabinet don't expect the you know, average people in the street in inverted commas not to think that you are pretty disreputable you know that's it's just when it, you're, it, it's the nature of this topic of Brexit, of Britain's place in the world, is so significant that playing games with it is just not acceptable. And just, just quickly on the media comments, domestic media, 
you know, I'm sure you read my statement when I crossed the floor, Sam. There was a sentence in it about the twin diseases of English nationalism and populism. I was just interested by the theatrical way in which you did it. Uh, yeah. You should yeah. tell us about it. It's yeah, a-, a good friend gave me a, gave me some uh, gave me a tip on Did it, but I'm not I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say who it was. Do you want to explain to the listeners how you you did it? Because it, yeah. there was a news item. I will, but just let me just on that point about international media, and they picked up that phrase. There's a guy on the Washington Post flying in tomorrow, coming down to my constituency to interview me. Right, because they want to try to understand the, what's happening in British politics, and I'm not so sure I've got all the answers, of course, but I was struck by the fact that that was picked up, and it's because it is, in effect, what's happened in America. It is, in effect, what is happening in Italy, in Germany, in France, in various to various degrees. And I really do think that people who are against the, the rise of nationalism and populism they need to every party needs to take stock of that and the Conservative Party needs to get rid of it from the system I don't quite see how it's going to do it and that's why I've made the decision I've done but it is important that we rid our politics from it because it is just divisive and we're getting politicians who who win on division not on unity and I personally don't think that's in the best interests of of my country but going to the the lighter side of things Sam in terms of you know how did it feel and how was it staged I mean you know what do you do when you're going to be changing party what's the right thing to do and um, at the moment everything is politics is is so dramatic I mean there's something happening every hour it's 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 remarkable really a, a privilege to be in some ways to be part of it because it obviously is history uh, sort of on fast forward um, it was done, I mean, the idea of doing it at that point came from someone slightly modified because one, I wanted to show respect to Jane Dodds, who was the newly elected member for Brecon and Radnor, who had to go through the process of being admitted to the, uh, to the Commons. And then, and then it was suggested to me, well, why not be ex- two new members of the Liberal Democrat <laughs> Party be escorted to, the, to, to where they sit and I thought yeah that's, that works for me and um, what I didn't expect Sam and I don't know what, how this reflects well on the markets but for Sterling to move um, I don't know I had that power um, but apparently it moved in the period of time afterwards which I think says more about how um, the markets are more about psychology than fundamentals but that's, for another, that's a discussion for another day Don't, don't talk yourself down uh, uh, Philip but um, just to sort of round off this uh, part of the discussion, so the Ben Bill was introduced this week because it is getting late to stop No Deal and Parliament had to take action. And the yeah. behaviour of Downing Street made MPs extremely nervous. Prorogation yeah. in particular, comments from ministers that even if Parliament passes legislation, the government might not uphold uh, the uh, legislation or give it royal... Get, it given royal accent, made parliamentarians very nervous. And what happened on the Conservative side is that the more MPs were threatened not to vote for the legislation by the Prime Minister, the more willing they were to do so. And um, hopefully... That goes back to my point about not understanding. There's no emotional intelligence amongst the advisers in number 10. That's my point with the comments I was making earlier. Got to understand the motivations of why people are in politics. And I think they've totally misunderstood Richard Bennion, Nicholas Soames and the like. That's Sorry to interject, but that's my point. And they, so Gittos um, would agree with me that when we started to try to put a, the list of names together to try to get a people's vote, 
it was we were better, Gitto in particular, better at understanding people's motivations than the whips of us. Absolutely, but sorry, uh, Sam. I, I, no, I absolutely agree. I, but, but so MPs acted in the national interest, and that is incredible. But the, underlying all of this is why did Downing Street do what it did? And people are saying that there is this is because what the prime minister really wants is a general election. I think that's the case. I think he's been planning a general election, been wanting a general yeah. election from day dot. Yeah. What he's been trying to engineer is for the backdrop of the general election to be a people's versus parliament general election. Now, there's deadlock. Why is it that the Labour Party voted against the general election to keep a Conservative government it wants to replace in power? Well, I'm personally very pleased that they did um, because I was very nervous that the Labour Party perfectly correctly, um, because they are the opposition, would have gone for a general election. It would be the sensible thing for any opposition to do. Um, But I think the Labour Party have shown a degree of maturity in saying no, and I genuinely hope that they will carry on showing that maturity, because the reason this Prime Minister wants a general election is in order to get a no-deal Brexit. And if we go for a general election on the 15th of October... Um, then we will not get anything other than a no-deal Brexit. And I'm very pleased that uh, all the opposition parties, the Labour Party, particularly the Scottish Nationalist Party, because, I I should apologise, the Scottish National Party, um, because, quite frankly, the opinion polls for the Scottish National Party are really good. So when the newspapers say that Jeremy Corbyn is scared of a general election, possibly... But the Scottish National Party are are riding high. And at the moment, they would probably win 10, 12 seats from the Conservative Party. And yes, the opposition parties have not gone for the option of an early general election. Not because they don't want a general election, but because they know this is part of a number 10 Downing Street to take us out of the European Union without an agreement. And there is no democratic mandate for that. Now... If Boris Johnson wants a Brexit general election, and I absolutely agree with you that he does, then he's duty-bound to acknowledge that he might lose. Now, I know Boris Johnson thinks that he walks on water and has a very high opinion of himself, but he must at least envisage the possibility that he might not win. And if that is the case, then there's an obligation uh, on any responsible government to acknowledge that a new government has the right to negotiate a new deal with the European Union. But what Boris Johnson wants is a general election which takes us out of the European Union regardless. And I think the opposition parties have been mature, responsible and acting in the national interest in saying that if Mr Johnson wants an election, then he can have one, but it can only be given once we have extended the deadline for leaving the European Union. Because an incoming government has a a right, in my view, to have an opportunity to try and negotiate a new deal. What Boris Johnson is trying to do is to bounce us into a a no-mandate, no-deal Brexit. And I do genuinely hope that the uh, Labour MPs, the Scottish National MPs, the Liberal MPs and all other MPs in Parliament stick to their guns and do not give Boris Johnson this general election that he does not deserve. Good, sir. That, 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 is, that is very, very good in terms of explaining the motivations and what the government is driving and why you find, we find ourselves in a situation where the opposition 
is voting against a general election to keep the government in power. Now, just as a sort of a slight political anorax point, I mean, there's a, I mean, the SNP in particular are quite nervous about or going through the same division lobbies as the Conservatives, as far as the general election is concerned. Can you just give a, give, give us a bit of uh, it's background very, on that? Well, first of all, uh, the SNP are facing a real challenge because their members in Scotland are, are really up for a general election. Um, the opinion polls in Scotland shows that the SNP uh, would wipe out Labour and they would take between 10 and 12 seats off the Conservative Party. So if you're, the, if you're an SNP activist, you want an election. Um, but the SNP are also very aware of the fact that the only reason this Prime Minister wants an election is to achieve a no-deal Brexit. And there's no way that the SNP can actually support a no-deal Brexit. But also, and this is very important, um, the SNP still have the scars of what happened in 1979. What, what happened in 1979? Well, in 1979, the SNP had 13 MPs. Now, they've currently got 35 um, but in 1979, they had 13 MPs. And in 1979, they voted um, to support uh, Mrs Thatcher's eff- efforts to secure a general election. At that general election in 1979, the SNP representation fell from 13 to 2. But why was that? Because the people of Scotland are not particularly keen on the Conservative Party. And being associated with bringing down or facilitating a new Conservative government... Uh, was deemed to be unacceptable to the Scottish electorate. So I am confident that the SNP will do two things next week. They will stick to their guns on the fact that they will not facilitate a no-deal Brexit. And secondly, I just cannot envisage a situation in which 35 SNP MPs will actually support the most right-wing Conservative government in living memory. I genuinely do think that um, if the bill that we supported, the Ben bill, uh, receives royal assent, then it gives the Prime Minister, and it's a very moderate bill, by the way, um, the media tries to claim that it's taking no deal off the table. Well, it's not. Uh, it's taking an undemocratic no deal off the table. Because it says point. quite clearly, it says yeah. quite clearly yeah. if the House of Commons votes for a no deal, then no deal it is. And let's be honest, we live in a representative democracy, so if the MPs elected by the British people decide that actually the best course of action is to leave without a deal, then we can leave without a deal. So when the Prime Minister calls this a surrender document, well, he's the one who's surrendering. Because if he thinks that there's an argument for no deal, well, then why does he not make it in our Parliament? Why does he not win that argument with the MPs in in the British Parliament? Because... We are saying quite categorically in this in this um, bill, if he secures a deal, and he says he's trying to, I don't believe him, but he says he's trying to. Well, there's no evidence. That he absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But if he is secretly involved in negotiations with somebody in Brussels, nobody in Brussels knows that he's doing it, but, you know, if he is, then he can bring that deal to the table. And if Parliament votes for it, off we go, we leave the European Union. If he's not negotiating... Then he can say to Parliament, my advice to Parliament is that we leave without a deal. Well, we live in the British political tradition where if a Prime Minister says that this is his recommendation and that recommendation is rejected by Parliament, then yes, of course, he can have an election. But what we are saying in this bill is 
if no deal is rejected, we can't then have a general election because the Prime Minister's policy of no deal has been rejected. However, in the meantime, we leave without a deal. So all our legislation is saying is, if Boris Johnson wants to leave without a deal but can't persuade Parliament, then we should have a general election. Of course we should. But we can't leave without a deal in the meantime because that would be undemocratic. And what Boris Johnson is doing is lying. And I use that word quite deliberately. He's Are lying. you sure you want to go that far? He's lying to the British public because what he is saying is that this is a surrender document. The only person surrendering is Boris Johnson because he is Fritz, in his own words, he is Fritz of explaining to the House of Commons why a no-deal Brexit is the right option. And he is Fritz of facing the British public and explaining to them why a no-deal Brexit is the right option. One option that seems to be off the table, government of national unity. Yeah. Is that something that is remotely um, impossible now? Or is it likely? I mean, it was the subject of much discussion during um, August. Anyone want to go for that? Well, you know, I mean, I'll let you come in in a minute, Gitta. I guess some of us have sort of thought it might end up there for a long time, actually. And it became a topic of discussion probably the end of last year in small groups. It's a challenge to get to bring one together. There's no question. It's the combination of, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn being an unacceptable leader to... Um, everybody really, um, including the great majority of the Labour Parliamentary Party, if you speak to people privately. Um, and so that's a challenge. And and then so it's finding an acceptable person who could be that caretaker manager and then trying to get the total. And I've, I've heard numbers of 312, 315 would be practically, you could sort of practically deliver things at that level. Is, is If you look at the numbers, it's, it is a difficult. But I've always thought that government and national unity is a solution was literally the 11th hour. I mean, it's sort of really down the line and I don't think um, that you're going to see it unless in extremists it's like that's it it's either this or it's no deal and so I um, I think it might happen I've had I've, I've had the sort of order of events that might happen over the next six weeks legally Supreme Court and everything else the Queen's involvement I've, had, I've spoken through this with people who know more than I do so there is a possibility at one point but I'm interested to see what you think Gitto about whether it actually could be brought but, about but, 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 and Gitto who do we think could lead it Ken Clark, Joe Johnson I'll, I'll just explain Yvette Cooper, um, Hillary Benn so if you'd asked me on Monday I would have said this was a 1% chance yeah um, now it's Thursday and I think it's now about a 20% chance. And I'll try, and explain, I'll try and explain my thinking. I genuinely do believe that um, the legislation that we passed, the Ben Bill, uh, will get royal assent because the Lords will pass it. Yes. So therefore, um, unless the Prime Minister can either secure a deal or um, persuade the House of Commons to support no deal, uh, he has to go for an extension. I also think that there's a really decent chance now um, that the Prime Minister's efforts to get a general election will be rejected. I know it still depends upon the Labour Party um, but I think there's a real chance that a general election will be rejected. So so, but the Johnson, Prime Minister said he would rather die in a ditch than this is seek key. an extension. That's the so key we've point. So got, we've got a massive tension here. No, that's the key point. Because on the 19th of October, two days after the European Council, the legislation that we have passed 
says that the Prime Minister has to go to Brussels and seek an extension. And I expect Boris Johnson, as a man of honour, which is a contradiction, I suspect, um, I expect him to resign at that point. On the 19th of October, he will be breaking the law unless he resigns. Because on the 19th of October, the legislation is very clear, the Prime Minister will be breaking the law unless he seeks an extension. Now, the Prime Minister has said, and, you know, there's no reason to believe um, this Prime Minister on any issue, um, but he has said quite categorically that he will die in a ditch before seeking an extension. If he does not seek an extension, then the Prime Minister is defying the law. So at that point, I expect him to resign because, you know, he is an honourable member after all, and so therefore I would expect him to resign. At that point, I think the calculation in Downing Street is that Jeremy Corbyn would have to seek to be the leader of a unity government. So, so a vote no confidence? No, there's no need for that because the Prime Minister will have resigned. However, if I was Jeremy Corbyn, let's be honest about this, the last thing I would want to do is to go to Brussels seek an extension and then face a general election where Boris Johnson will be accusing him of signing the surrender documents. So there, right. there is an alternative. And the alternative... So, I'm, I'm, yeah, so how do we... I'm struggling is, with this logic. The yeah. alternative is we have another individual for a very brief period who will become Prime Minister. As long as your surname is Johnson, will that suffice? No, no I think I think the uh, independence member for Rushcliffe would um, be the right person, Ken Clark. And the independence, for, independence member for Rushcliffe could become the leader of an unity government which will do what the law demands, and I do stress that point, do what the law demands, seek an extension. Once we have that extension, we can ha- then have an honest general election. A general election where the people of this country can decide, do they support the no-deal madness of Boris Johnson, or do they decide on an alternative? But at least we will then have democratic control of where, of where we end up. So I expect the Prime Minister to A, obey the law, B, be true to the promises he made, which was, if I can't leave on the 31st, I will die. Well, he can resign. And subsequently, I see no reason why the leader of the opposition should sign any documentation that he does not want to sign. So therefore, for a very short period, we should have a government of national unity to seek an extension, agree a responsible days for a general election and then allow the people of this country to make a decision. End of the podcast now. It's been a tumultuous week, but it looks like this is only the beginning of... um, what uh, what is going to be a a crisis-ridden autumn? We've it started as a political crisis. It's probably going to morph into a constitutional crisis very soon. Who knows how many Conservative MPs are going to be supporting the Prime Minister by the end of it? It I think is entirely conceivable that the Boris Johnson Premiership ends without him winning a single vote in the House of Commons. That is entirely conceivable, if given what um, uh, Guto said. But we've got to bring this to a close. We all have our weekends. I'm going to be spending some time with my children. And um, uh, Philip, 
your first weekend as a Liberal Democrat um, MP. Yes. Well, I'm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of. I go to bed at night at the moment, just reminding myself I'm a Liberal Democrat MP. I sort of lay over the head on my pillow, Sam, and it's because it's quite genuinely on a personal level. It, it's it's a big it's a big change in my life. It's a big shift, and. Um, and I'm pleased I've made it, but it's still something I'm adjusting to, and I think that's only human. I mean, it's been a remarkable week, um, quite overwhelming in some regards, um, and I, I suspect next week is going to be similar at the start, and who knows what's going to happen over the weekend. I, I tend to share Gitto's belief that this is going to push it on into October. I wonder, actually, to, to, will there may be some legal action at some point we may end up in the supreme oh, court over, over the ben bill yeah, you think? Uh, we may end up in the supreme court and i gather if they defy the supreme court ruling it's a civil case it's not a criminal case it's it gets really complicated I mean, and i think the, her majesty hey, might get involved at that hang point in a second we're talking about the government in court yeah. over legislation that has passed in parliament in one of the oldest dem- democracies in the world yeah I mean, this is not normal it isn't, but I think it's where having an unwritten constitution um, and where, you know, the, our system is really creaking, it's really cracking around the edges. And I suspect you might, I mean, if they really are going to be as determined as reports of, of being, you know, coming out of number 10 that they are going to be because they understand the system as well as, you know, Gitto does, there is a distinct possibility that the civil service are going to have to make a call on whether it's appropriate to continue taking orders from a government that is breaking the law i mean you're you're in a you know you're into really different difficult territory and i hope it doesn't get there if we get there i I hope it doesn't get i hope that doesn't we don't get there so i i mean i'm finding politics at the moment stimulating exhausting emotionally sort of challenging the whole thing um but it Throughout it all, I'm trying to keep my eye on the ball, and all three of us, I'm sure we all feel the same way. It's it's about it's about the people, isn't it? It's about the British people. It's about our country, and I think we just need to keep our eye on that and remember that at all times. And it's so you know goodbye from me until the next time we meet. On that um, rather um, cheerful note, um, if I can call it that, it's a goodbye from Philip Lee. Thank you to Gutterbeb. Um, there is going to be a lot to be discussed next week, so do stay with us and um, we will give you our insights, our thoughts, our reflections on what is happening in Westminster. Not all of it will be spot on, but at least you know that you've got people here who are willing to sacrifice their careers in order to put the country first. Thank you. On the House was presented by Dr. Philip Lee, MP, and Sam Jima, MP. They were joined this week by Guto Beb, MP. The producer was Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. On the House is a Podmasters production.